Have you ever seen one of these? This is a this is a really neat wire stripper. Uh, you can take any of a variety of sizes of insulated wire, and you just push the push the wire in there and do that, and you got a stripped wire. And it doesn't even nick. Even if you got finely braided wire, it doesn't nick any of those wires inside. It's a very cool tool. It's one of my favorite. It makes a really lousy hammer because <laughs> it doesn't have the mass to drive a nail unless you hit the nail several thousand times. And there's really no surface on it for nail. And it's, it's an even worse screwdriver because there's absolutely no surface on it that will turn a screw. But it, it, does, uh, it does a fabulous job as a wire stripper. Now, I'm going to show you another tool that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. It's right there. That's a tool, too. God gave that tool to me to use for a certain set of tasks. If I use it for those tasks, it works amazingly well. But if I use it for something for which he did not design it, it works very poorly. And even if I use it just the wrong way for one of those tasks, it does a really bad job. This morning, we're going to see what the God-ordained purposes or objectives are for the money that he puts into our hands. And when we handle the money that he has given to us according to his purposes and his design, very good things, in fact, eternally good things happen by his doing. When we don't, we mess things up quickly. Now, I decided this week to split our consideration of the New Testament principles related to giving into two messages instead of one. Yes, again. <clears throat> uh, but next week, I expect that we'll actually wrap up this theme of giving by looking at several very practical New Testament principles that tell us who gets to participate in the blessing of giving and how and how much we are privileged to give. Now, I'll say again for any of you who are not, uh, who are new to this, to this church or visiting, it's been a long time since we talked up here about giving, and it's not something we do with any great frequency. So I know there are a lot of churches where that's a primary theme on a regular basis. <laughs> this is something that we, we believed was important to this series that we're doing on, um, why we do what we do as a church and as individual believers within the church of Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to focus on why, or perhaps more aptly, what are God's objectives for calling us to give a portion of the material prosperity that he gives to us back to him. Why do we give? First, to acknowledge God's ownership of us and of all that he entrusts to us. In other words, to acknowledge God's ownership of everything. Last week, we looked at what the Old Testament declares about God's absolute ownership of his people and of everything that he put into the hands of his people. We saw that reality memorialized for God's people in the commands having to do with a couple of very important observances. First, 
the release of Israelite slaves every seventh year, every sabbatical year. And secondly, in the command every 50th year, the Jubilee year, to return any land that had changed hands because of a debt that one Israelite owed to another, to return that land back to the original uh, family to whom God had given it. And God's explicitly stated reason in the passages that talk about those two observances, Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15, his explicit reason for those observances is that he owns the land in which his people dwell and he owns the people who dwell on that land. All belong to him. And that very same principle of God's absolute ownership abides under the new covenant. And we also saw last week that in the Old Testament, God's people were instructed to give back to him the first, the best, and the life of all things. God didn't get the the leftovers. He got the first part of every harvest before any Israelite was to eat any of that harvest He got his portion. The firstborn of every womb, both of man and of beast, was devoted to God. And the blood of every sacrificial animal was devoted only to God because the blood is the life and the life of every creature belongs to him. Of course, the animal represented the offerer, so that pictured God's ownership of the life, the life's blood of the offerer. Now, these were vivid, tangible Memorials, reminders to God's people that He alone is both the source and the owner of everything that He has given to us and even of our very lives. And even though we are no longer under the law of Moses and no longer required to observe the letter of those commandments, the principle of the commandments still abides. And God's claim over our lives is made all the more pervasive for us who have the full story of redemption because we recognize that we have been bought out of slavery to sin for God to be His possession and His inheritance. And that purchase was at the cost of His Son's life's blood. We who know that, uh, that He bought us at that cost are called to be joyful servants of the living God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, give us one glimpse of how this principle abides into the, how it transitions over into the New Testament. It says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, I realize that passage isn't about giving. It's about sexual purity. But verses 19 and 20 forcefully declare that God owns us, whom He has redeemed at the incomparable cost of His Son's life. And Romans 6 says that we who have been identified with Christ in the likeness of His death and resurrection, are now slaves of God and slaves of righteousness. And slaves are owned. In Romans 12.1, Paul urges every believer, all of us, to present our bodies as living, holy, and acceptable sacrifices 
to the God who owns us and to do so as our perfectly reasonable service of worship in light of His abundant mercies toward us. Every time we give back to God out of what He has put into our hands, we acknowledge the marvelous reality of His ownership. We acknowledge Him as the one from whom every good and perfect gift comes and as the only one worthy to truly possess everything that comes from His hands, including our lives. Jimmy read that passage in Revelation 5 this morning where Jesus Christ is praised as the only one worthy to receive riches and honor and glory and majesty. That wonderful Godward purpose in our giving is the greatest purpose of all. And it's the foundation of every other purpose that God has in mind. The third verse of the great great old Irish hymn, Be Thou My Vision, gives me chills. <laughs> riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. <laughs> That's a very pervasive theme in the Bible. David said in Psalm 16, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Asaph said in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides, besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, Lord, are the portion. You are my portion. The portion means the inheritance. In Matthew 6, Jesus talked about that treasure, which is our relationship with God. See, <laughs> our inheritance is a person. Matthew 6, I don't have a slide, but you guys are pretty familiar with this passage. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And God is that treasure. Even if God never put any of the gifts that we give to Him to any other use, this would be reason enough for us to lay all that we have and all that we are at His feet. But God multiplies the usefulness of the gifts that He gives to us and the gifts that we return to Him by bestowing good and eternal benefit on other men through those gifts. And so the yield, the outcome of what we give back to God brings the treasure of relationship with Him to other people. And that's the heart of why we give. That's the heart, that's the heart of why we give to needs that, that address men. As slaves of the one perfect Master, wholly owned by Him, God puts us to use as His agents. And that's a wonderful assignment. As with everything else that He graciously gives to us, the money and the stuff that He puts into our hands are, are tools for His use. And they're tools that build eternal things. So what are the tasks for which God gives us those tools? What are God's manward objectives for the money and possessions that He puts in our hands? 
Well, it's clear that he uses the material possession uh, provision that he gives to us to provide for the needs of our family and of we ourselves. And we'll get a better look at that particular purpose of God next week when we consider what Proverbs has to say about hard work and laziness. Uh, But there are a number of what I'll call other-centered purposes for which God intends to use the money and the things that He puts into our hands. And as I see it, there are four essential purposes, uh, if you would, objectives in which we act as the agents of God toward other men. First, to meet the needs of the saints. Second, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then, to show the world our King and to give the world a preview of His kingdom. We're going to talk about those one at a time. First, to meet the needs of the saints. This is what I see as the first manward objective of our giving to care for the material needs of men, and that is to address the needs of our fellow believers. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul said to the church at uh, at Galatia, in the region of Galatia, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. The context in which those verses occur is talking about God's call to believers to sow to the Spirit rather than to the flesh. And it talks specifically about providing for the needs, the material needs of those through whom God bestows spiritual benefit to us. Paul makes it very plain that our God-ordained priority when it comes to meeting material needs is first on the needs of those who are of the household of the faith, of our fellow believers. That priority is very, very consistent throughout Paul's letters to the churches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16... Paul is taking up a collection. He's instructing the Corinthians to take up a collection until he comes to pick up that collection and carry it to the church at Jerusalem. And he says that collection is for the saints. Now, in the New Testament, the word saints doesn't mean the guys who are on the you know stained glass windows in certain churches. It means the holy ones of God, every believer in Jesus Christ, everyone who's been redeemed. He says, concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of the week, every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper that no collections be made when I come. Now, we're going to look at that passage and some others in more depth next week. But what I want you to see here is that this offering that was taken up was for the saints. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5... Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, but he's commending the churches in Macedonia, cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And he says, Brethren, Corinthians, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their generosity, their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, 
they gave of their own, own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of whom? Of the saints. And he says, and I, I, I talked about that passage a couple of weeks ago in another study, but it's, uh, it's exceedingly important to the theme that we're looking at this morning. And this, this point, I believe, bears repeating. We have a, a rather deeply entrenched conviction in the modern evangelical Christian church that we're supposed to give priority to meeting the needs of people who don't yet know Jesus Christ, even if it means that some of our fellow believers have to do without physical provision. And we're supposed to do that in order to get a foothold so that we can share the gospel with those men and those lost men and women who so desperately need to know Jesus Christ. Now on the surface, that sounds really good. But the question is, is it really biblical? And I would have to say that in terms of emphasis, it's not. Whether it makes sense to us or not, the commendable kindness of filling stomachs and building houses and putting coats on cold bodies does not constitute God's primary strategy for convincing men who Jesus Christ is. If we want to use our money more evangelistically, to draw lost men to Jesus Christ, we need to pay attention to what God says about how He actually makes that happen. And there's a simple strategy that Jesus said the Father would powerfully use to convince the world that He is indeed the promised Messiah, the Son of God sent from the Father. And that strategy that we see in His high priestly prayer the night he was betrayed, is to show the world the marvelous love and unity that exists between redeemed saints. This is how the world will know that we are his disciples, and this is how the world will know that the Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, my disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may all be uh, also be in us. And then here's the, the purpose clause. So that the world may believe that you sent me. And then he brings the same point to bear again in different words. The glory, Father, which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me that they they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them even as you have loved me. I believe this is exactly why the New Testament puts the priority of our giving not first, not first on meeting every physical need that exists in the world, but first on meeting the needs within the body of Christ. This is why the overwhelming majority of all the New Testament says about what happens with money that Christians give to other people tells us that that money went to other Christians. No matter how uncomfortable that approach to investing in the spread of the gospel makes us, I believe it's God's approach and it's God's assignment to us as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So we need to embrace it. 
and we need to think about how to implement it, both individually and as a body. Now, I am not saying there is no evangelistic value to meeting the physical and material needs of lost men and women. I'm saying it's not the most powerful way that God uses our money and possessions to draw men to Christ. And His emphasis needs to be our emphasis. That's, that's all I'm saying. Where do we start in addressing the needs that exist within the body of Christ? Well, we start at home first. In Acts chapter 4, we see that <coughs> the starting point for the early saints was to meet needs among the believers in their own local community, their own church, if you will. The saints in Jerusalem liquidated all that God had given to them. Many of them even sold their houses, and they made all of it available to address every need that existed among the saints in Jerusalem. Now, that didn't mean that if a guy sold his house, he never got to see any, or, or to make use of any of that of that asset again. It meant that it was out on the table for whoever needed it, including him. The saints first, the saints in Jerusalem first met the needs of their fellow saints there. But they also attended to the needs of saints in other places. When the believers gathered in Antioch, heard Agabus prophesy that a great famine was coming during the reign of Claudius, Acts 11 tells us that the believers there in Antioch tended to the physical needs of the heavily persecuted churches in Judea, the region in and around Jerusalem. And that region was likely to suffer the most during that famine because Claudius, who had already expelled the Jews from the city of Rome in 49 AD, was not very fond of Jews And so Judea, which was heavily populated by Jews, probably wouldn't fare so well during a a famine that affected the whole Roman Empire. So the church at Antioch was making provision for those saints in Jerusalem. The first manward goal of giving is to act as God's agents for the provision of the saints. In practice in the early church, that included the saints at home and it included churches in distant places whose needs had become known. The second manward goal of giving is to act as God's agents for the advance of the gospel, to further the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, It says, the congregation of those who believed, and this is again in Jerusalem, were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was on them all. For there was not a needy person among them. Do you see the connection between meeting the physical needs in the body and furthering the proclamation of the gospel, it's right there. See, the soldier whose supply line has been cut off and who's starving on the battlefield and the soldier who knows that his wife and children are starving at home, both of them are distracted from engaging in the battle. 
one of the powerfully useful purposes for which God gives has for which God has believers give to other believers is so that those who are on the front lines of spreading the gospel of Christ will be undistracted by unmet physical needs. That includes their own physical needs and it includes the needs of those believers who are under their care. And by the way, it doesn't mean that anybody's getting rich, right? There are some people who get rich on the proclamation of the gospel, or at least supposedly the proclamation of the gospel. It means that needs are not left unmet as God defines those needs. In the opening paragraph of his letter to the saints at Philippi, Paul commended those dear believers in that city for their perseverance in their uh, for the perseverance of their participation in the gospel. And we know from Philippians chapter 4 verses 10 to 20 that that, particip- that participation included money given by the Philippian believers to support Paul and his co-workers in their propagation of the gospel. He said that when no one else was giving, they were. Now, it's a wonderful privilege to support the work of those whom God is powerfully using to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many individuals here at CBC and CBC as a body, corporately, have supported the work of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel, in many places all over this world over many, many years. David prayed for several of those people who have come out from our body and are faithfully uh, spreading the gospel across this world. God delights when we participate in the gospel. All right, so we act as God's agents in giving, first to meet the needs of the saints, then to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then also to show the world our King and to give the world a preview of His kingdom. And I'm going to take those two together because they're very strongly linked. Once again, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, While we have opportunity... Let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. While I hope it's clear from Scripture by this point that we, have, we are called to give first priority to that, uh, to that especially clause, to meeting the needs within the body of Christ, Paul also makes it clear that we are to do good to all men. And the, the topic in that passage is about giving. I believe the basis for this instruction is fundamentally that we are to act toward other men as Jesus did. Because we're his representatives in the world until he returns. I'm going to ask you to consider for a minute what Mark chapter 6, and you can turn to it if you'd like, what Mark chapter 6 says about Jesus' motive for first teaching and then miraculously feeding a group of 5,000 men, not to mention all the, men, all the women and children that were with, were with them, who had gathered at, <laughs> interestingly, at a lonely place to which Jesus had gone with his disciples. Talk about having your schedule rearranged. In Mark 6, verses 31 to 44, Jesus uh, is at this place and he sees all these people gathering and there's a whole bunch of them. It says, uh, verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw this large crowd 
And he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And as, as dusk fell, his disciples said to him, these people need to go and find something to eat. And Jesus said, no, you feed them. <laughs> and they looked around and said, well, how much food do we have? And it turned out it was five loaves and two fish. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties and Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and he looked toward heaven and he blessed the food and he fed 5,000 people and they had uh, 5,000 men and they had 12 basketfuls left over. In Mark 8, Jesus explained to the disciples why he was once again about to feed a multitude of 4,000 men who had gathered around him. Mark 8, verse 1 says, In those days there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. Jesus called His disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from a great distance. So at one level... Jesus healed the sick and fed the hungry simply out of compassion because He is compassionate. He cares for sinners and outcasts. He cares for the sick and the hungry and the hurting. He cares about those who are afflicted by the curse of their own sin. And thus, so must we care for men because we're appointed to show Christ to other people. But beloved, if we see the exercise of His compassion in the meeting of physical needs as somehow divorced from the exercise of His compassion in imparting life to lost sinners, then we see with distorted vision. God is all that He is at all times. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is both compassionate and just. He is both caring and holy at all times. And His dealings with lost sinners never had the meeting of temporal, fleeting, physical needs as their only purpose. Never. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13.3, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. See, charity by itself is not equal to love. Love pushes people toward God. If we are indeed displaying our Master and Savior to this world, that most certainly means that we will show men compassion and care for their physical needs just as Christ did. But we will never treat the meeting of material needs as the whole assignment toward any person because to do so would be to fail to care for men's truest and deepest need. The need for life. Jesus never did that. He never lost sight of that which is life indeed. I'm going to pose a question I asked recently. When Jesus was here the first time, could He have healed every illness of every man? Yeah. Could He have ended hunger as an issue worldwide? I should think so. We're talking here about the one who spoke everything that we see into existence. About the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. He could do whatever he wanted to do. 
So let me ask you this. Why, in John chapter 5 and 6, did Jesus at one point feed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish? And then after many from that very same group of people followed Him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, not feed them, but instead say things to them about real food and real life that they found so disturbing and so revolutionary that most of them turned away from Him in disgust. The same revolutionary words that Peter said were words of life that nobody else had. Do you think those two radically different approaches to food had anything to do with each other? Yeah, they did. The reason Jesus healed and the reason that Jesus fed multitudes was clearly not to eradicate illness and hunger and suffering in the world. He's going to do that the next time He comes, after He judges. So why did He bother to heal people and feed people at all? Did He care about their physical needs? Surely. He was moved to active compassion by their hunger, but that was never in isolation from the fact that He was moved to active compassion by their lostness. Mark 6.34 says He felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And the first thing He did after it declares that is He began to teach them many things. There's the food that matters. There's the food that, that persists into eternity. The perfect shepherd would never fail to know and address the true need of the sheep. When Jesus healed and when He miraculously fed thousands of people, He wasn't acting out of concern. He wasn't, excuse me, He wasn't just acting out of concern for men's fleeting temporary physical needs. He was acting at the same time out of concern for men's eternal souls. He wasn't just showing them the kindness of their King. He was showing them the power and authority and holiness of their King. He was giving them a preview of His kingdom. The kingdom that will usher in the reversal of the curse. The kingdom in which the compassion and grace and power and righteousness of God will put an end to sin and death and disease and hunger. He was giving him a glimpse of what was coming. And that's what he calls us to do as his ambassadors. To show the world our king and to give them a preview of his kingdom. How do we do that? (laughs) How do we show men both the character of the king and the promise of his kingdom? Well, I don't know about you, but I've had very little success with performing miracles. And in fact, I confess I haven't even tried Now, I believe that God still performs miracles. And I believe that in every case, He does so for the very same reasons that He did throughout the Scriptures, and that is to attest to His message and to attest to His messenger. And if and when God chooses to use one of us as a vessel for such a thing, such a miracle, He probably won't ask us first, and He may not even tell us first. Because it's all about Him and His power. So I don't concern myself a whole lot with that, but I can say with reasonable confidence that for the most part, the good that God will do to all men through us until Jesus returns 
will be simple acts of loving kindness, compassion, and mercy accompanied by words that point men to Jesus Christ. And the purpose of those good works will not be to end the suffering of mankind or even to end the suffering of those people to whom we are ministering. It will be to introduce them to our King and to give them a preview, a foretaste of His coming kingdom. And please hear me now. That brings us right back to where we started. Because the most visible and compelling and accurate preview that we can give any man of His kingdom is the church of Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. The most compelling and visible and accurate preview of the kingdom of Jesus Christ that we can give to any man is the church of Jesus Christ. And that, beloved, is why God so clearly and repeatedly instructs us to give first priority to the needs of the saints. I was talking about this last week with one dear brother, and it prompted him to tell me about an experience he had growing up as a young man in a Bible-teaching church. His church was in the midst of a very aggressive fundraising campaign to add a big, a big building to their facilities. This brother had befriended an elderly woman in the church who had for many years faithfully tended to the needs of other widows and infirm women in the body. One day, this, this very gracious woman invited him over for lunch, or perhaps it was dinner, I don't remember which. And when he got to her, when he got to her house, he found that she lived in a dilapidated wooden frame house with a dirt floor, no central air or heat, and an outhouse for a bathroom. And the church was doing a building drive. It was the very lowest standard of living that he had ever seen. And he was a young believer, and he struggled mightily with the crossed priorities that he saw in his own church. But guys... What do you think an unbeliever would conclude if he looked upon that same set of information? Which material needs within the body of Christ should get priority over building projects and programs to address needs outside the body? I believe God's answer is all of them. Every need that exists in the body gets priority over those things. And the reason I believe that's God's answer is because His church is the world's glimpse of the love and unity and fellowship and mutual care into which they will enter if they put their faith in Jesus Christ and follow Him. His church is not just a preview of His kingdom. His church is a glimpse of the Trinity, of the love and unity and fellowship that has existed in the Godhead from eternity past into which we have been drawn because of the work of Jesus Christ. And it is an amazing thing to behold. And when we act in such a manner that God can use us to show that reality to others, people are drawn. All right. What needs outside the body would God have us address? I want to be careful how I address this point, so please hear me out. We have a lot of biblical instruction and narrative that tells us about the various contexts in which God uses our gifts of money and possessions to meet the needs of our fellow saints and to further the proclamation of the gospel. 
But while we are told to do good also to all men, we do not find a similar wealth of instruction or examples in Scripture regarding how and when, as believers, we are to advance financial and physical needs outside the body. And I believe the answer to that question has been significantly complicated by the times in which we live. Because in today's world, the knowledge that we have of, of specific needs is a whole different ballgame than it was when these things were written. Think about this. Because of modern technology, I now know about compelling, even screaming physical and financial needs on the other side of the world, and I know about them moment by moment. Instead of being faced essentially with the needs in our personal spheres of influence and in the community in which God has placed us, you and I and CBC as a body have specific knowledge of a vast multitude of needs that are very real and and often very, very compelling. How do we know where to even begin to be useful to God in meeting such a sea of need. Well, as my, my dear brother Philip Borat reminded me this week, it is critically, critically important for us to recognize that that question is not going to be resolved by discovering some formula in Scripture that tells us what percentage of our, our total giving needs to go outside the body or which needs it needs to go to. You can look a very long time and you won't find that in here because it's not there. And there's a good reason it's not there. It's because when Jesus fulfilled the old law, he didn't replace it with a new one. So we have to get used to living with a considerable level of uncertainty when it comes to the specifics of how godliness works out day by day. And that, uns- that uncertainty applies in the matter of giving. When we get that that great reality, and we accept our utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit, not only to direct our steps, but to make good of our missteps, we discover the wonderful blessing of truly walking by faith and not by sight. That's grace. We stop thinking that we somehow have to, we somehow have to know more than God has clearly told us in order to do what God wants us to do. We recognize that God has, in fact, given us a whole lot of latitude about things like which material needs we should seek to address. Our acts of service to other people become a blessed and joyful privilege rather than a source of fear that we might not get it right. See, it's about the heart. It's never about the right checklist. (laughs) So... We look around, we look at the options that God has brought to our attention, and I think especially those that He has set right in our faces. And we pray for wisdom, and we pick one. Maybe we pick three. And we give joyfully to meet those needs because God has given us everything in Jesus Christ. And we don't have to look back, we don't have to second guess. Because the only one really, the only one really who ever meets a need is Him. We're just instruments. We're supposed to be willing, active, joyful instruments, but we're just instruments. I want to close by talking about a little bit about the root and the fruit of giving. And I think this is an amazing concept. 
2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. Uh, this is the passage that we read at the beginning. And I'm not going to read it again, but I want to point out a couple of things in it while we have it up here on the screen. It presents God as an overflowing fountain of provision. Not a garden hose, a river. It says He is able to make all grace abound to you so that you will always have sufficiency in everything. There's a lot of absolutes there. (laughs) So that you will have an abundance for every good deed. See, it says He multiplies your seed for sowing. Why? To what end? So that you will have your righteousness multiplied in the lives of other people. By His doing, your deeds, your acts of righteousness produce thanksgiving toward God that comes from the mouths of many. (laughs) Not just your thanksgiving, but the thanksgiving of those whose lives are touched by your overflowing generosity. When God showers you with blessings, and that includes money and a whole lot of other things, He does so not so you'll have more to keep, but so you'll have more to give. So that you'll shower those same blessings on others. Now this is really an amazing and revolutionary concept of the purpose of material wealth from the hand of God. So many Christians have what I believe is is a distorted view of how it's supposed to work if God sees fit to bestow bountiful provision on them, uh, material blessing. Let's say they've determined to give 10% of whatever God puts in their hands back to Him. And they haven't done it because of tithe. They've done it because they decided from their heart on that percentage. So they say, if God gives me $10,000, that's cool because now I've got $1,000 that I can give for His eternal use. And if He gives me a million dollars, man, I've got $100,000 that I can give back to Him for whatever He wants. And and won't it be cool to have that other $900,000 for my family. Now they may not think quite in those terms. They may be very diligent about always giving the percentage that they purposed to give to God. And the more God gives them, the more they're giving Him back for His eternal purposes. And that's all good. But guys, the question they never ask, the question that most of us never ask, is how much should I keep? How much is enough for me and my family. Whatever God gives me beyond that, I get the blessed privilege of giving it right back to Him for His eternal use. And really, all the rest is out on the table for Him too. He can take that if He needs it. It's all His. I read an article a while back by a Christian preacher and author, and I am about to finish, so I know I'm about to run late, but we'll finish quickly. An article by a a Christian author and preacher who found himself shocked by the success of a book that he had published and equally shocked to find that his income had skyrocketed overnight as a result of the proceeds from the sale of that book. He said that he and his wife made no change to their lifestyle and he stopped taking an income from the ministry that he worked with so that that ministry could expand its reach even further And he gave every penny beyond his living expenses right back to the the work of the Lord. See, he figured out, he settled on an answer to a question, how much should I keep? 
And he did it very intentionally. And it wasn't like God came to him in a vision and told him, keep this much. That's not the point. He prayerfully, he and his wife prayerfully arrived at their answer to that question. And he was pleased to joyfully just hand all the rest of it back to God. If you're able-bodied and you can get a job, then God clearly intends to use you as his instrument, his agent, to provide for your family's physical needs. God has some things to say about people who won't do that when they're able. But we tend to get carried away with our definition of the word need. And pretty soon we're stuck on the notion that we're supposed to sock away enough to cover not just a few rainy days, but a few thousand rainy days. I believe it's both pleasing to God and liberating to you and to me to determine before God how much He would have you keep and to consider all of it to be at His disposal. That doesn't mean you just go out and give all of it away tomorrow. It means it's at His disposal. And you know what's cool about that? It kickstarts a wonderful effect on your heart and my heart toward both God and men. It makes us eager to see specific needs that He sets before us because we're looking for them. When God sets a need before you that He has graciously given you the ability to meet, He wants you to know the joy and the blessing of meeting it as His agent. What a radically different way of living and of giving than many Christians have ever experienced. Father, I pray that, uh, that these principles, we have, we have more to see, but I pray that these principles we've looked at this morning would, would have a very real impact on our hearts and on our lives. Lord, we know you mean this stuff. And sometimes we seem not to. This is, this is so important, Lord, because this is all about where our treasure is. It's about where our heart is. And we want our hearts to be absolutely yours, Lord, in all things. Use us. Use us. Make us instruments of your glory and make everything you've handed to us tools for your eternal purposes. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.